So I will return to my initial question. Are any of you afraid of the dark? Now that your kids are out of the room, you can admit that you might be afraid of the dark. Thank you for your... There are some honest people in this... I'm just kidding. But maybe you might be afraid of the dark. Maybe, maybe you know someone's afraid of the dark. Maybe your kid's afraid of the dark. Like I said, I admit that sometimes I'm a bit timid. I really was afraid of the dark when I was a kid. But now that I'm older, you know, it's not too bad. But if you hated being in the dark, then being in London in 1939 would not have been fun for you. Prior to the Second World War, the British Air Ministry predicted that English cities would be the target of bombing raids by Nazi Germany if war ever broke out. So in an effort to protect their citizens and prepare for any potential conflict, they knew that drastic, perhaps uncanny measures needed to be taken. So in July of 1939, two months before the declaration of war, the British government issued an edict that all lights be turned out in London and eventually the whole nation. It called for all of man-made lights to be turned off. And the government distributed these public leaflets, letting the public know when this general blackout of England was going to occur. Because as you see, their tactic was England was going to hide in the dark. So on August 11th, 1939, the blackout began with the city of London. Street lights were no longer lit. And the only lights that you could see were those on the front of cars, or the eerie searchlights searching the night sky for potential enemy aircraft. And then two days before war broke out, on September 1st, 1939, the rest of the nation went dark. And for the next five years, this was the case. Then on September of 1944, the intensity of the blackout was reduced. Man-made light was permitted so long as it did not exceed the moonlight. And then full lighting was restored about six months later in April 1945, as the war seemed to be nearing its end. But for those living in this period of darkness in England, it meant adjustments had to be made. Curbs had to be repainted to make it easier for cars to see them at night. Lanterns and lights had to be taken down, or dimmers had to be placed on them. Police officers had to risk their lives to stand in the dark and direct traffic through roundabouts safely. So the question became, did the blackout work? And scholars debate, perhaps partially, the lack of lights made it harder for the enemy aircraft to find their targets. In the, in the end, only 41,000 civilians were killed in Britain as opposed to nearly half a million in Germany's lit cities. But blackout, darkness, not a pleasant way to live life. For those who lived in Britain and wartime, Darkness was an unsettling time. Darkness represented a lack of peace, a hopelessness that seemed to never end. Darkness, the absence of light, has never represented peace. Not now, not in the early 20th century, and as we see, not even in biblical times. There is something about having just a little bit of light that makes situations more bearable makes them less stressful and less nerve-wracking. It's amazing to me what just even a smallest source of light, any source of light, dispels any anxiety that darkness may provoke. And it's comforting to see a light, even in a distance, because it means that there's someone else there. It means that salvation is on the horizon. It's getting closer and closer, even just the smallest instance of light. As I told the children earlier, 
while we may be afraid of the dark, I don't think God is. Because we see here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 22, perhaps an indication of that. While the darkness in this passage is not a literal absence of light, the darkness it talks about is something that is equally unsettling. It talks about a spiritual darkness, a darkness that people find themselves in where it seems like all hope and any sense of peace are lost. We see in this passage that Jesus' choice of where he's going to start his earthly ministry, where he's going to do the bulk of his earthly ministry, is where darkness appears to be running rampant. We find Jesus intentionally going into this domain of darkness to bring about light in such a place, and I believe that God still operates like that today. This morning, as we begin our sermon series and reflecting on what it means to follow Jesus, I, be, I want us to begin by recognizing where Jesus is intending to go. We will see what it means for Jesus to call his first disciples to journey along with them into a place of darkness that he can bring light into such a place. This morning, I hope that we can take away what it means to follow the leader. So my first sermon point this morning, it's on the screen now, is that the light moves and works in the darkness. We see now in Matthew chapter 4 that God's on the move. The gospel writer has shifted with Jesus preparing to launch his public ministry. Up to this point in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus has largely been a passive figure. Things have generally been happening to, in, and around Jesus. Matthew records the birth narrative of Christ, the arrival of the Magi, the escape, and the eventual return of Christ's family from Egypt. And then the gospel writer turns his attention immediately to Jesus' adulthood as he remains silent on Jesus' upbringing and growth. So when we get to Matthew 4, we find that Jesus is already a man. We then are introduced to John the Baptist, and Jesus just appears, and he wants to be baptized in the Jordan by John. But then afterward, Jesus is just led away to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And so when we get to 4.12, we arrive at this verse it appears that a pivot occurs. Now we find Jesus making a strategic decision on how, but more importantly, where he's going to begin to start ministering. The text tells us that upon hearing the news that John the Baptist has been arrested, Jesus makes his first move. He withdraws to Galilee. Matthew does not tell us why John the Baptist was arrested, and many scholars can speculate, and we can make our best guesses, but we believe that it has something to do with the original regional leader of Herod Antipas, which Matthew later tells us about in chapter 14. But nevertheless, John's imprisonment signals to Jesus to make this transition to Galilee. But it seems like an odd move for Jesus. Why would he move to this reason in the light of recent events? Because one would assume that Jesus may try to distance himself from what is happening to John the Baptist. But almost the opposite's true. For you see, Herod Agrippa ruled over the region of Galilee. And his capital city of Tiberias was only eight and a half miles down the coast from where Jesus was getting ready to set up shop. But the important takeaway here is that this signals that the role of John the Baptist as the forerunner, as the precursor to the Messiah, is complete. As John moves into the background, Jesus begins to now take center stage. He begins to set into motion the plans of God because, like I said, God is on the move. But next, the text tells us that Jesus moves from his hometown of Nazareth to a bustling city called Capernaum. The Gospel of Matthew is the only gospel to explicitly tell us that Jesus moves to Capernaum. 
Jesus leaves his small, remote village in the hill country to a busy, lakeside, uh, more, more populated, more well-known city on the shore. Capernaum had the means of spreading a message fast among its many trade routes that passed through this village, and so perhaps this is why Jesus thought this would be an ideal place to set up his headquarters. Capernaum, logistically, is a more ideal place to launch a public ministry than Nazareth. However, we notice here that something more important is taking place. Notice what Matthew says. Matthew indicates that this transition had larger messianic implications than simply setting up an ideal HQ for Jesus. He tells us that this relocation by Jesus was by divine design, as was foretold by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Because Matthew even offers a lengthy quotation to prove it. He wants us to catch what God is doing here because this Old Testament reference is used because perhaps later readers may have missed what God is trying to do here. This transition to Capernaum was an intentional move by God. When God moves, he moves strategically. The location of where Jesus starts his earthly ministry and predominantly reigns for the entirety showcases who the heart of God is with. It's with the people who are residing in darkness. Let me reread this quotation from you if you want to follow along. Land of, Nef- land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. For you see, historically, this territory of Galilee was originally distributed to two of the original tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali. This is the northernmost part of the ancient nation of Israel, and this region was a powder keg for social and cultural turmoil over the centuries just prior to the time of Jesus. For you see, at the time of the prophet Isaiah, when the quotation that we've read, this region was just invaded by pagan Assyrians who infiltrated the land. And then over the next 700 years, more and more Gentiles would migrate into this land and offset the native Jewish population. And so by the time we get to the events of the New Testament, many Jews in the South were beginning coming suspicious of the Gentiles and Jews living amongst each other, and they were suspicious of their fellow kinfolk up north, because Jewish, Jewish people in the South feared that the pagan worship of the Gentiles would negatively clout the religious practices of Jews living in and around Galilee. But to make matters worse, someone else was in control, the Romans. The territory was not even controlled by the nation of Israel. Instead, the land now was on, under the heel of Rome. So a combination of centuries of subjugation by foreign powers, the influx of pagan religious practices, and an increase in non-Jewish population results in this place being called a land of darkness in the eyes of the gospel writer Matthew through the lens of the prophet Isaiah. And so based on all of this, this entire description, these people from the outset would seem the least likely to receive Jesus in his message. And it's curious why Jesus would choose these people to begin his preaching and ministry with. Why would he aim his ministry towards them? One would think that Jesus would start his ministry in Jerusalem, in the south, the center of religious power and prestige. The educated elite of Jewish society seemed like Jesus' ideal target audience since they'll probably be the ones that know what he's talking about, not Gentiles and Jews living amongst each other up north. 
But Jesus chooses the exact opposite strategy. We see that Jesus chooses not to associate with the high and the mighty. He does not conform to our religious norms and expectation. Rather, Jesus lives and ministers among the lowly, the poor, and the needy. Jesus' choice to begin his earthly ministry in Galilee defies all messianic expectations and predictions. And notice Matthew's key description of this region as a place where the people are seated in darkness and in the shadow of death. We return to this language of darkness in reference to these people's absence of hope. The people who lived here were living in perpetual despair because of the oppression and poverty. The people were in a cycle of desperation with no evidence of salvation in sight in light of the historical and cultural events that I had just previously mentioned to you. But Jesus goes to the land of darkness where the light of the gospel will shine the brightest. Jesus goes to the places of darkness because it's the people who are trapped there that need him the most. We read in another gospel, Gospel of John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And being the light of the world, he knows better than anyone where there is an absence of light. And he chooses to go there. God enters into the domains of darkness with the intent of bringing the light of the gospel there. Notice this beautiful language that's offered in this quotation, that those living in darkness had the light dawned to them. Dawn suggests that the light first shone brilliantly here, not that it shone brightly somewhere else and then moved here. The genesis of the light of the world coming into this world occurs in the darkest of places. Those in religious centers and places of political power were not the first witnesses of the great light. Rather, it was Jews and Gentiles who resided in dense darkness who would be the first spectators of this light entering into the world. I was reading a beautiful story this week about a woman named Patricia St. John. She poured her life into ministering people in the neediest of places on our planet. She's remembered now as one of the most prolific British Protestant evangelical writers of fiction in the latter half of the 20th century. Perhaps maybe you've read her work. But she's already been described as an ordinary woman with an extraordinary faith. The bulk of Patricia's ministry was as a Protestant uh, missionary, nurse in Morocco. And during her time there, she recorded that many times war refugees would flood into their country. They had suffered terribly and had lost everything, yet those among them who were Christians still gave thanks to God despite their circumstances. Patricia said that she stood one night in a crowded little refugee church, listening to those who were uprooted, listening to them singing joyfully and she says she records that she had this life-changing insight that burned her way into her mind. She says, we would have changed their circumstances, but we would have not have changed them. She realized that God does not always lift people out of the situation. He himself comes into the situation. He does not pluck them out of the darkness. He becomes the light in the darkness. God moves and works in the darkness because he is the light. God did not choose to start operating in places of enlightenment. Rather, he chose to start in a place that needed the light the most. We see this more explicitly said by Christ later in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 9. Verses 12 through 13, Jesus tells his disciples, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. I guess we could rephrase it and say those who are already in the light 
have no need of the light, but those who are in darkness need the light. And I believe God still operates that same way today. I believe that God still moves in our world today. He's invading the regions of darkness and seeking to bring light. There are people today who live lives of hopelessness and are stuck in sin, who do not have the salvation that comes from knowing the light of the world. Darkness today may look different than it did in Galilee. And while we may jump to the conclusion that darkness is in a country or a people group that's halfway around the world, but I encourage you to look a little closer to home. Maybe it's that waitress at your favorite restaurant. She's just going through a tough time right now, and you can tell that, and she just she needs the light that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Maybe it's that family member, and you know they're a decent person, but they have not come to saving faith in Christ yet. They need the light. Maybe it's that coworker at work that's going through a rough season right now, as we all are, but specifically this person right now needs the light of Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to invalidate the need for foreign missions, but I don't want us to miss those who are potentially living in darkness that are right in front of us. Do you know of someone who is living in darkness? Or maybe this morning you would say yourself that you are living in darkness. Know that God is still on the move inside the realms of darkness that exist in our world and he's seeking to bring it light. But This moves me to my next point. The light moves and works in the darkness, but he's called us to follow him into that darkness. If Christ is heading into the regions of darkness to usher in his light, then as his followers, we ought to follow the leader. God is on the move, claiming territory in the places of darkness, and the question now becomes for those of you that identify yourself as Christ's followers, are you willing to follow him there? Because notice that Jesus does right after he begins preaching. We read that Jesus starts at verses 18 through 22, forming a community of faith of followers around him. Up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has primarily operated alone. However, it's significant that his first recorded action is to gather a group of followers who will commit themselves to total change of lifestyle. He could have done his earthly ministry alone, but he has chose to intentionally want others to come alongside him and to join him and not only learning more about the light that he brings, but also about sharing it with others. We read that Jesus is walking along the shoreline when he comes upon two brothers, Simon, who's later called Peter, and his brother Andrew. The duo are busy at work, minding their own business, trying to make an honest day's living in a thriving fishing industry. But Jesus interrupts them. He comes into their world and disrupts their daily routine. And he tells them something remarkable, but yet something also seemingly ridiculous. Follow me, and I will make you fish people. Incredibly, Matthew records that Peter and Andrew need little convincing and immediately start following him, leaving behind everything. They leave behind their well-being and their security, and these siblings just begin to follow Jesus. Yet we read that this is not an isolated incident. Jesus leaves from there and finds even another set of brothers. He comes upon James and John who are working with their father, Zebedee, and the family's fishing business. And like previously, they seem to be minding their own business in a casual, everyday fishing day with dad. Except this man named Jesus comes on the scene. 
And just like Peter and Andrew, the sons of Zebedee immediately begin following Jesus, leaving behind their, their family, their business, and even their own dad to follow a man they just met. We see that as intentional as it was for God to enter into the places of darkness to bring the light of hope, it seems just as intentional that God wants a community of faithful disciples to journey with them as he spreads this light. A part of God's plan is assembling a people committed to following him and learning from him how to become lights themselves. If you keep reading in Matthew, just really close to where we're just at in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, it reads this. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Note that this famous Sermon on the Mount is preached to disciples. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus wants his disciples to be lights in the darkness, reflecting the light they have witnessed and experienced from encountering Christ. Followers of Christ in their conduct, in their character, are called to follow the leader and becoming beacons and conduits of Christ's light in the domains of darkness that still exist in this world. There's a made-up story that describes Jesus returning to heaven after he sojourns here on earth. And the angels gather around the Lord to find out all the things that he has happened on earth. And Jesus explains to the angels how he lived among humanity and shared his teachings, expressed his love, died on the cross, atoning for humanity's sins, when he was resurrected to declare that the new kingdom is at hand. But when he had finished telling his story, the archangel Michael asked Jesus, well, what happens now? Well, Jesus answered, I left behind a handful of faithful men and women. They will tell the story. They will express the love. They will spread the kingdom. But what happens if they fail, asked Michael. What will then be the plan? Well, Jesus answered Michael by saying, there is no other plan. Those this morning who would identify as disciples and followers of Christ are called to be lights in the darkness. By following the leader, we imitate the light that we have experienced in following him. Part of God's divine plan was planting the light in us, for us to then shine in this darkened world. We're not the light itself, because Christ is. However, we are the bearers of that light whenever we decide to share it with others. As followers of Christ, our responsibility is to be instruments of the propagation of God's message of hope and salvation to those living in the dark places of despair and sin. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. He says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without any fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Some of you this morning may be personally disqualifying yourself from being a light to the world. You may point to your background, your past mistakes, your current vocation as evidence. But did you catch that Jesus' earliest disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were not religious scholars or rabbis or even holy men. Rather, they were fishermen, ordinary people, flawed individuals. Jesus has called artisans and encouraged them that the skills that they already have are serviceable to the kingdom of God. 
Jesus has called sinners like you and I who are saved by grace to be messengers of the gospel. Before you discount yourself or your ability to be a light, see that Jesus calls us, regardless of our skill level, of our education, to be lights in the darkness. Our aptitude, our past sins, should not be sources of reservation from where God has called us to follow. But nor should we be afraid of the dark. We should not fear going into this darkness alone. I return to my initial question I asked you this morning. We do not need to be afraid of the dark because God has provided a community of faith, of fellow light bearers to journey with us in this world. Like Jesus and his earliest followers, we have our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to lean on one another as we bear this light to the world because that's the purpose of the church. And that's what I hope the purpose of our church family is, that we encourage one another to continue to better shine the light of Christ in our world. But more importantly, Jesus promises to be with us as we bear his light to the world. If you flip to the end of the gospel of Matthew in chapter 28, 16 through 20, Jesus, after his resurrection, tells his disciples to meet him somewhere. Do you want to know where? Galilee. The place, you may recall, where the people are residing in darkness. The place where Jesus' ministry all began. This is the place where Jesus calls them back and he commissions them out as his messengers. He tells them, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember that I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus beckons us to follow him into the darkness to spread his light, and he promises to be with him. The question is, will you follow him? This week, I think it put on full display that the reality of darkness is still existing in our world. All you have to do is simply turn on the local news or click open Twitter, and you'll see where darkness is whether around the world or even closer to home. This last Wednesday and the demonstrations of violence and chaos that erupted at our nation's capital, I think showcased that in spades. But I think that's only the tip of the iceberg. As followers of Christ, we must not be afraid to follow Jesus into the darkness of our world because God is still on the move and he's seeking to bring salvation to those who are living in darkness. They are the people that still need him. But the question is, are you willing to follow the leader?